So hindsight is 2020. Uh, oftentimes we look back in our lives and we have regrets. Sometimes it's things that we said or things that we did, or perhaps maybe it's a lack of wisdom on our part that if we knew differently, we would change the things that we did. And uh, I'm oftentimes reminded in my own life of many things that if I could go back and redo them, I would. And I know that in this season, in this year, I think COVID even has highlighted a lot of areas that if we uh, weren't um, living in such a way, we might have been more prepared, whether it be financially or whether it be uh, as things kind of gained down from our government and authority and all those different things that we've struggled with. I think the challenge is in hindsight, 20, if it is 2020, we would turn some of that hindsight into foresight. We would do some things differently in preparing for things like that again. Uh, matter of fact, as I think about uh, that, I'm reminded by a story that I shared many, many years ago here. And if you've heard it uh, before, then I apologize in advance. But uh, many years ago, I, thought I shared a story about a gentleman uh, who uh, had, had lots of wealth and lots of money. And uh, he had a very, very large ranch. And he had a foreman that he trusted that had worked for him for 25 plus years. And he goes to his foreman and he says, hey, listen, I'm going to give you probably the biggest project that you've ever had. And what I want you to do is I want you to build a house for me. Now, I'm going to go away. I'm going on a business trip. Uh, and so I'm going to be gone for eight to 10 months, uh, possibly longer, but I'll be back. Uh, and when I am, I would love to come back and enter a brand new home. And so you know where the hill is that we've always talked about. I want you to build that house up on the hill. I want you to take care of the, the gate and the entry and the road. I want you to take care of everything. And I want this house to... Uh, be absolutely pristine and perfect. It should cost you a lot of money. And here is a large chunk and a sum of money. And if that's not enough, then here's the number to my uh, investment uh, protocols. And you can call this guy and he can make sure that you have enough money to finish the product project. So in the sense, he goes, there is nothing that's not at your disposal. Build the house. And so the foreman looks at him in the eyes and agrees to him and, and, and begins. So the, the guy goes away on his business trip. The foreman begins uh, with the gate and the entry and the road. Eventually uh, begins with the foundation. But as the project goes along, what the foreman begins to do is something that is somewhat despicable. Uh, he begins to cut corners. And instead of putting the money into the house or into the road or other projects, he's keeping a little bit out for himself. And the challenge is, is that he had this ability to, in a sense, be spared no expense, and he begins to cut, cut corners. And so um, he cuts corners on the foundation. Instead of doing everything he could possibly do, he cuts some corners. He does a little less than. Uh, he begins to cut corners when it gets to in, the inside of the house. Instead of um, doing things that would have been great protocol, he begins to kind of, in a sense, fudge it a little bit. And all the while, he's taking and putting a little bit more in his pocket. And all this time, he just continues to build this house. And on the outside, it looks really good. But as you get to the inside, you see all the budget savers that he did. Instead of sparing no expense, he began to cut these corners. And so instead of uh, marble and, or granite countertops, he goes with things like Vermica. And he just goes to this, this place where you just look at it and you go, hey, he, he just cut corners. And uh, the boss gets home, and once the boss gets home, um, he, he goes, hey, have you built my house? And the foreman says, absolutely, I built your house. Hey, did you spare no expense? Well, I, I, I did it with everything that you gave me. I didn't have to go to your investor, so I felt really good about that. Hey, did you do an honest job? Absolutely, I did an honest job. And he takes out the keys out of his pocket, and he goes, hey, you've been my trusted foreman for 25 years. Welcome home. <laughs> and he gives him the keys to his house. 
Now, if hindsight were 2020, would the foreman done things differently? If he knew then what he should have known, then guess what? He would have changed some things. And listen, that is oftentimes what we have to make sure that we're paying attention to what it looks like to build a firm foundation. A couple of weeks ago, we started this series called Hindsight is 2020, and we came across the words of a guy named Agur in Proverbs chapter 30. We don't know a whole lot about him, but what we do know is that he was a wise man and that he taught many things, the, the Proverbs that we're going to read. And we know that in, in the first week, he talked to us about what it looked like to build a firm foundation, a house on the solid rock. Last week, we talked about what his prayer was, that he prayed basically two things. One is to be protected from falsehood and lies. That means to live in truth. And the other was to be content, that he wanted to be pure and he wanted to be content in all things. And we talked about what it looks like to be that. But what's interesting is, is when you get to chapter um, 30, verses 10 and 14, which we're going to read today, he gives us, in a sense, the um, the difference between somebody who lives in truth and contentment, he gives us almost the person that's wayward. The person that, if you were to look at their house, looks good on the outside, but on the inside, it's cheaply built. So he's told us what it looks like to have a life that would honor the Lord, and that means that you build on a firm foundation, that you live in truth, that you come out of darkness, and that you are a content person, that you trust the Lord with all things. In verse 10, he tells us, the, in a sense, the, the, uh, the opposite of that is to be something different. And he begins to unpack that a little bit, and he helps us to see people who, instead of living in the light, they live in the shadows. Instead of being content, they give you the mirage of contentment, but really they're built on lies. So what he's, in a sense, doing is showing us what the modern-day Pharisee would become. And there's oftentimes in the church the falsity of our lives, which makes us pharisaical. So he tells us what it looks like to build our house in a way that honors the Lord, and then he gives us a contrast, a contrasting view of what it would look like to be a person who did not build his house well, that was, in a sense, a Pharisee. And he begins that in verse 10. And this is what... The words of Agur say, verse 10, do not let slander a servant, do not slander a servant to his master lest he curse you and you be held guilty. What he's simply saying there is he's going, hey, you need to be careful uh, what you do with your words. Like you don't go and you don't slander people um, and, and instead uh, you be wise in that, that it doesn't come back on you. That you, you need to make sure that what you do and what you say is wise that you are always thinking through what it is that you are, in a sense, accusing a person of. And it reminds me of Proverbs 26.2, a verse that all of you probably have memorized. It says this, Like a sparrow when it's flitting, like a swallow when it's flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. What? You should memorize this one. This is great. Um, this is a great verse for your kids, okay? And it's with a sparrow and it's flitting, a swallow and it's flying. What is a, uh, so you might go, well, okay, a sparrow, it's a bird. A swallow, it's a bird. What the reality is, is that they rarely land on their nests for long. The idea is, is that it, it doesn't stay, it, that it's moving and about. And that's what happens when we build our house on falsity or lies, when we look good on the outside, but we're fake on the inside, we oftentimes will curse others with our mouth. And what the writer of Proverbs 26 says is that a curse that is causeless does not alight, meaning it doesn't stick. 
So if you remember maybe growing up, you'd be cooking a big pot of spaghetti noodles. And when it's done, you know the old adage, you can take a spaghetti noodle out and when it's ready, you can chunk it up against the wall. Anybody ever done that? Yes, okay, we do it all the time in our house. It means that it's ready, that it sticks. Um, If it doesn't stick, then it means it's not ready. The idea of that is simply this, that you, you need to make sure that whatever you say is impactful, that it sticks, that it's not a slanderous lie, that it's not built in manipulation, that it is truly what happened, that you, in a sense, make sure that you know all things. Uh, If you have kiddos at home, one of the great uh, lessons that you could do is take uh, a, a tube of toothpaste and you could give it to your kids, you have them squeeze it out, and then say, hey, these are your words. Now take those words that you just said that were hurtful and that were untrue to your friends, and now try to put that toothpaste back into the toothpaste container. It doesn't happen very well, right? Parents, I would go ahead and tell you that you could offer your kids 10, 20, 30 bucks, and you're going to win every time. It's like going down to 4th Street, whether it be in Wills Point, or for those of you that are joining us at Edgewood, it's like going down to the downtown area by Heritage Park. And it's by taking one of those old school feather pillows. Y'all remember those? And it's like opening it up and tossing it in the air on the windiest day and then saying, good luck, kids, go get every feather. The sparrow and it's flitting, the swallow and it's flying, the curse that you've shared that doesn't stick is like toothpaste that doesn't go back in. It's like feathers that you'll never contain. When your words are out, you never get them back. Friends, have you ever said something that in hindsight 2020, you wish you could have had back? Maybe said it to your parents or said it about a friend or maybe said it about somebody else in your life and, and you get pulled in and kind of sucked into the gossip thing, the trail, the circle that brings about lies and deception and deceit and you don't really know it's true, but you're sharing away anyway. You ever have those regrets? Well, listen, that's what Ager's talking about. It reminds me of Proverbs 18, verse 17. It just simply says this, the one who states his case firm seems... The, the one who states his case for, uh, first seems right until the other comes and examines him. I know I have a lot of friends that are uh, detectives or in the police department, and if they believed every story they heard the first time, then they wouldn't be very good investigators, would they? Right? The reality is, is every time that somebody states their case, they seem right until they're cross-examined, until you get all parties that are a part of the problem and the solution in the room. And friends, if you ever want to avoid being a sparrow and you're flitting, uh, if you ever want to be a swallow that is, is not like the one and it's flying, that you don't want something to be causeless or won't stick, then you need to make sure that you are speaking about the right people in the room, knowing all sides. Because if you only know one side, guess what? It's a problem. So here's what you need to understand. Agar is saying something about the falsity of a Pharisee. Here's what it is. Pharisees have lying lips. Pharisees have lying lips. They do not tell the truth. They are gossipers. They're slanderers. In verse 14, it'll say this. They have teeth like swords and fangs like knives. The reality is, is that they don't tell all the truth. There's things that are hidden, that are held back. Oftentimes, it means that they accuse others without the facts. Now, let me ask you a question. The Pharisee, who did they accuse without all the facts? Jesus. Though he was innocent in every way, every time there was a trial, they accused him falsely. They hung him on a a sinner's cross, though he was not sinful. He was perfect in every way, and yet he died in a sinner's stead because he was, in a sense, falsely accused. 
Pharisees that have lying lips, that they, they don't throw spaghetti that sticks. They are, in a sense, hateful. They're spiteful men. They are people who justify their inhumane treatment of others. They, they do not take care of other people because they are not worried about them. And reality is, in Mark 7, it says the Pharisees claim that they love God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. I think that's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, means in James chapter 3. He says the tongue can set a forest ablaze. It can be like a, 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 sh- a ship's rudder that, though it's very small, can turn the entire ship. He goes, it's a very small object, but it does lots of damage if you don't, if you don't tame it. Taming the tongue is important. And in James uh, chapter 3, 8 and 9, he just says, and how can it be that men and women claim to love God? He goes, in one way, we worship God, and with the same tongue, we curse men. He goes, may it not be. Friends, Pharisees do not partake the words of Agur uh, because they slander their masters and they slander their servants to their masters. Listen, be careful about that. Matter of fact, maybe heed the words and the instruction of Paul in Ephesians 4.29, which Paul says, Hey, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such that is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We need to protect the tongue. We need to protect others that we only bring people into the circle that involve the part of the problem or the solution. And sometimes when our tongue gets loose, it widens the circle. And oftentimes you have a bigger circle than you really needed. So we need to be careful of that. Verse 11, Agur says this, and there are those. Now, what's interesting is, is when you get to 11, 12, 13, and 14, the last four verses we cover, you can underline every time it says, there are those. So every time he goes, there are those. And who are those? They're Pharisees. He goes, they're the ones who are uh, duplicious. They, they are double-minded in a sense. And so he says in verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Now, I started thinking about that. And as a father, I love my children. I can't imagine a day that my children would go so wayward, even though they can, and I can imagine a day they would. I can't imagine a day that I wouldn't still love them. And so when he poses the question, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. The question is, is what does that mean? Like if our parents are always going to love us, even in spite of what we do, what does it mean to not be a blessing to our, our families or to our parents or potentially even to be a curse? And so I just started thinking about this week, well, what would that look like if, if in a sense, um, my kids were to take our family name and to run it into the dirt? What, what would they have to do? And I would tell you this, I think it would start with them despising authority. That they don't care for authority in their life. And sometimes we see that with children in our own lives, right? Our children don't enjoy our authority. Um, they can look at us in the eyes and go, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a has-been. You don't have a clue, right? And you're like, son, if you only knew. And you know that it's going to have to be hindsight that's 2020 in order to correct them. But you see that how they oppose authority. Friends, where do they get that from? Parents, a lot of times. And you might ask yourself, well, what does a Pharisee oppose authority? And the answer is absolutely they do. Pharisees despise authority. That's my point number two. What you need to know is that Pharisees don't like authority over them. Pharisees didn't like Jesus speaking into them. Pharisees don't like government telling them what to do. Pharisees don't like church leaders telling them what to do. The reality is, is there's always a conversation of, Regardless of what we agree to as a citizen, as a member, as a friend, whatever, as a son or as a daughter, 
The reality is you'll time and time and time again see in a Pharisee's life they, they will oppose truth and they will oppose boundaries. They will oppose truth and they will oppose boundaries. Why? Because as people, when our hearts are darkened in foolishness, we don't like to be constrained. Matter of fact, it makes us in some ways above correction. We don't want to be corrected. We don't want to be told what to do. Friends, you ever see that with a, a junior higher or a high schooler? If those of you are in education, you see it every day. And you're like, man, am I, I'm going to get a hold of that kid. But the reality is, is you see that oftentimes they despise authority and they're above correction. Friends, have we seen that lately in our own society? People torching buildings, tearing down monuments. Have we seen in the, the name of, in a sense, um, a lack of being oppressed, they oppress, and we call that freedom? The problem is it's a case of despising authority. It's, it, it keeps them from, in a sense, seeing that they have an attitude that they're above correction. It's making a mockery of not only their family name, but it makes a mockery of other things. In some cases, it makes a mockery of your church. In some cases, it makes a mockery of your school. Sometimes it makes a mockery of the place you work. In some cases, it could be a mockery of the country we live in. The reality is you see Pharisees want one thing, but oftentimes they do another. And in their opposition of authority and doing what's right in their own eyes, they make a mockery of themselves and the people that love them. I know that there are people all the time that... Um, are hurting as parents because of the choice of their children. And there are, there are parents that oftentimes are contacted by phone uh, or a police officer on their doorstep. And the reality is they're going to share with their parents what their son or daughter has done. And in very few cases do parents celebrate when their children go wayward. Typically they're grieved because they ask the question, how did we get here? And the question is, is how do we get there? It's when we in a sense, desire so much freedom that it enslaves us. Because freedom oftentimes can be used as a cover-up for our sins. And Paul says, hey, don't do that. What do I mean by that? My point is, is that oftentimes we want freedom like the prodigal. We go, hey, Dad, I don't want your authority. I don't want your, I don't want your wisdom. I don't want what you have to say as a parent. All I want is your stuff. So if you'll give me your money, I'll go and I'll live my life and I'll do what I want. And let me ask you a question. Luke 15 with the prodigal, how did that work out? <laughs> Listen, do you know that it doesn't work out usually for the son or the daughter? It doesn't work out that way a lot of times for our friends. It doesn't work like that in the workplace. It doesn't work like that as a church member. When we despise correction, when we despise authority, when we want to do what's right in our own eyes, we become a Pharisee. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 23, a chapter that we'll kind of settle in as we walk through these things. In Matthew 23, 8-11, Jesus says this to them, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And then he says this in verse 10, Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, which is the Christ. And the greatest among you shall become your servant. In verse 12, he continues on. That's the famous line where he says, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What he's saying is, he goes, Hey, listen, you're, if you're not careful, you'll despise authority so much that you forget who the great Messiah and instructor is. 
And the Pharisee goes around and they go, hey, listen, you have nothing to teach me because I'm the instructor. And listen, that's a dangerous place to be. And Jesus calls out the religious elite and he goes, don't call yourself instructor because there's only one and he is the Messiah, the one that you're going to share lies about, the one that you can't see his wisdom. So friends, be careful. In verse 12, uh, Agur continues and he says these words, there are those, there are those Pharisees who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. So he goes, hey, you need to be careful not to be a slanderer or a gossip or have lying lips. He goes, you need to be careful that you don't make a mockery of your family name, the one blessing that God's given you that's greater than any gold or silver or any other thing, a name that God's granted you. And he goes, and you need to be real careful that in all of those things that you don't do what all Pharisees do. And that is number three. They oftentimes point out the speck in others without seeing the log in their own eyes. Now, friends, I know that would never be you. And I know, I know it would never be me, right? But there are those people. Have you, ever, have you ever got frustrated with people because of what they do, and yet you do the same thing? It happens all the time. Um, oftentimes what we see, and Jesus even shares with us, that oftentimes Pharisees require a lot of others and they don't do anything themselves. That oftentimes they, they tie up cumbersome loads. Listen, can church leaders do that? Can church leaders ask people to do things that they never are willing to do themselves? Absolutely they can. Should they be church leaders? Probably not. Can, can friends ask you to, to do things that you shouldn't? And, and then, or that you, they encourage you to do, but they don't do themselves? Absolutely. See, the challenge with the Pharisee is, is that they were circumcised on the eighth day. They kept all the legal rules and rituals, but the problem is they never had a circumcised heart. And so they walked around all the time pointing out the flaws in everyone else, all the ways that everyone else was missing it, and yet they missed it themselves. Jesus said they were whitewashed tombs. Matter of fact, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 23, 25, and 28. He goes, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. I mean, can you imagine, and some of us probably do this, we have dishes sitting in the sink for a week, but could you imagine that instead of cleaning the, uh, the inside of the cup, you just kept using it over and over from day to day? Like, wouldn't that be disgusting, right? Now, wouldn't it be more foolish that you're like, hey, I don't have to clean the, out, uh, the inside of the cup because I've just kind of wiped down the outside. And with Jesus going, hey, that's what Pharisees do. Pharisees continually, always, they clean the outside of the cup, but they never care for the inside of the cup. That's a challenge. He goes, you should first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Reality is, is that it's important that you and I don't give a mirage of health when we're not. That we don't build a house like a servant that's not fit to be our own. Jesus continues on. He goes, hey, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. And some of the beautiful tombs that we have in cemeteries nearby, they are in, indeed beautiful. But Jesus goes, hey, don't get caught off by the beautiful marker, by, by the headstone, because he goes below that, he goes, you need to remember that even though it appears beautiful, within them are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. He goes, it's one thing to be caught off guard, guard by the headstone, but it's another thing to remember that that headstone is simply covering up something that's dead. 
That's important. And then he goes on. He says this in verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, friends, Pharisees, they claim to do what's right. They claim to want what's right. They never do what's right. And they never require as much of, uh, of themselves as they do others. In 2004, um, it was a, uh, an awesome, strange, and difficult year for me. Um, it was some of the greatest life lessons the Lord ever taught me. Um, in 2004, uh, I transitioned out of a ministry role. I took a one-year stint as a football coach and as a history teacher at Wills Point High School. Um, that's been uh, 16 years ago. Um, the Lord taught me lots of lessons that year. The number one lesson was get out of education. Um, and uh, I always remember that. The reason I was supposed to get out of education is for this reason. The Lord had placed a call to vocational ministry in my life. I knew that I was to shepherd people in this context. It also makes me very appreciative for those that are in education and that are making a difference every day because you are light and darkness. You are a city on the hill and we're thankful for you. I knew it wasn't my call. And that's one of the lessons that I learned that year. A second lesson that I learned that year is this, is that winners aren't produced by a scoreboard. That year we started out the glorious football season, 0-6. It was miserable. Uh, long hours, difficult nights, away from my wife. It was challenging. And on top of that, you didn't taste the success of winning. It was hard. And that year, the Lord taught me one of the most beautiful lessons of my life. And that is that winning isn't about trophies. Winning is about life. It's about becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, even when life is hard and when it doesn't go as planned. The third lesson that, that the Lord taught me that year is what leadership looked like. And he did it through our head coach at the time. And the head coach at the time happened to be my dad. His name is Mark Bactel. And one of the things that he said, and it's always stuck with me, and in some ways it shaped my ministry, is that he said, I'll never ask you as an assistant coach to do something I'm not willing to do myself. And every time that there was laundry to be done after practices or ball games, he always was there doing it with his coaches. He would never ask his coaches to be there at 5.30 a.m. and then him show up at 7. He was always there first. He always set the example that if life is hard, you'll not do it alone. And he always showed the example of that a program being built oftentimes requires lots of hard work, time, and attention that no one else will ever see or even thank you for. But the reality is, is he was not a man of duplicity. He wasn't double-minded. What that also meant is that he wasn't fake. He didn't go around trying to please a bunch of people. He knew that doing his job, the thing that God called him to, didn't require him a lot of time to be able out building fake relationships. He did what he was called to do, and he said, and my coaches will never do that alone. One of the things that you'll never see in a Pharisee is that attitude. See, a Pharisee will always be with people building fake relationships They'll never build a firm foundation and they'll never do the hard things that they're required to. They'll ask more of their staff than they will do themselves. And friends, that's in our businesses, that's as husbands, that's as wives, that's as children, that's as educational people, all of it. We should always think, am I requiring more of others than I'm willing to do myself? The people that are able to keep people the longest in their business are the ones who realize that their boss is in it with them. 
the greatest turnover rates are the ones that are demanding of their employees, but you never see their boss by their side. Friends, don't be that person. A Pharisee will always do and require more of others than they'll do themselves. Matter of fact, verse 13, Ayer continues with these words. He goes, there are those. So he says, there are those. There are those. He says it again. There are, say it with me. Those. There are those. Who are they? They're the fake Pharisees. He goes, how lofty are their eyes? How high their eyelids lift? See, the more that we become uh, demanding of others more than what we'll even do of ourselves, the more haughty and prideful and oppressive we become. And that's what a Pharisee will do. A Pharisee will start by um, despising authority, by not honoring uh, people, being false with their lips. It will build over time, in a sense, to um, requiring more of others than themselves. And then from there, there's pride and there's arrogance and there's, in a sense, an oppressive spirit. Jesus tells them that in Matthew 23, verses 2 through 7. He says this, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. He goes, hey, if you sit under their teaching, he goes, what they tell you is right. They're not going to lead you away from the Mosaic law. But he goes, what they do is not what you want to pay attention to. So he goes, listen to their words. Just don't follow their actions. He goes, it's like a father that tells his son, hey, do as I say, not as I do. Friends, fathers, how does that work out? I mean, we tell our kids what they should do, but that's not what we do. He goes, that's the challenge with the Pharisee. He goes, they preach, but they don't practice. Verse four says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move the, uh, anything with a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make phylacteries broad and their fringes are long. And they love the place of honor at a feast and the best seats at the synagogues and the greetings, the marketplaces. And they love being called rabbi by others. They love it when people say, hey, reverend, hey, hey pastor. Um, they love that. They love titles more than they like to be teachable. They love the idea of, of telling people what to do, but they don't like the idea of doing it. They memorize the law, but they never it, uh, wrote the law in their hearts. Matter of fact, as they memorized the law, one of the things they did best was finding loopholes in it. The, the challenge is, is that they only kept parts of the law that were really convenient for them. Can we do that? Can we take God's word and manipulate it in such a way that we only keep parts of it? Yes. He goes, may it not be. The reality is these men, oftentimes, not only did they like titles and accolades, they liked the places of position, but they, in sense, they asked people to do things that they weren't willing to do. Listen, can I just seek your forgiveness? Because I think sometimes in the past, we've asked people here to do things that some of our leaders weren't willing to do. Um, I pray that we would adjust that mindset. And one of the things that in the last handful of weeks that we have really been trying to double down in it just is making sure that we care for our leaders, that we care for the people who call this place home. And in order to care for our members well, it means that we need to make sure that people understand what membership is and that they align as members to what they've agreed to. That we often want to shepherd those who want to shepherd, which means that we're not going to give as much time and credence attention to those who don't want to be shepherded here. But with that, as we protect our sheep, some of the things we've realized is that we put our sheep in harm's way. I want to give you one example. 
One of the things that we've done over the years is that we've asked people to serve in a variety of capacities and we've not cared for them well. And the best examples that I can give that I've sought forgiveness for in these areas um, is around our kids' ministry and also our regeneration ministry. Um, One of the reasons I shared what I did last week in regeneration is in the next year I'm committing my life to help regeneration be healthy. What I meant by that is that we've had three or four men that have spent the last five or six years helping make that ministry go, but we've never had all hands on deck and we've never made commitments that we are now. And so our commitment now to kids ministry, to regeneration ministry, and other ministries is that we're never going to place leaders in a group by themselves ever again. Meaning that you always have to have two leaders to launch a group. That's true for kids' ministry as well. What that means is is this, is that right now in kids' ministry on both campuses, we're only able to have one kids' ministry service. Now, the question is, is why is that? Is it because um, we don't have the space? No, we can have the adequate space because we can offer kids' ministry on two services and two locations. The challenge is, in order to do that, we would have to take all of our team and divide it in half and then put one adult in every single room one adult per eight or nine kids. And we say, we don't think it's wise. Why? Because it doesn't allow us to shepherd tender hearts. It doesn't help adults be accountable to one another. And it doesn't protect them. So let me say it this way, maybe a way that you can understand. If you have horses and you are charged to use the horses to deliver mail, what's more important, delivering mail or protecting the horses? See, a lot of us in here are like delivering mail, baby. Like the mail's got to be delivered. Rain, shine, sleet, or snow, we're going to deliver the mail. And listen, you're right. We need to deliver the mail. But if you deliver the mail at all cost and you kill your horses, you're out of business. And I think we've killed our horses. In years, we haven't protected and nurtured our horses. And here's why I tell you that is one, not only to seek your forgiveness, I think in some ways we might ask you to do things that we weren't willing to do ourselves. But I think more than that is to help you understand that if you're a parent here, it's easy for us to become pharisaical even in our request. Hey, I want kids' ministry. I want regeneration. Hey, I want student ministry. But the reality is, I want you to hear this those ministry only exist because of its members. And if its members aren't doing the work of ministry, then guess what? You don't have ministry anymore. And I think that's where we are. The reality is, is we are not offering any more of kids ministry beyond one service on either campus because we have nothing else to offer. If you're in Edgewood right now, number one, I want to say thank you to the four people that have dedicated over there time after time after time. Four. I want to also thank the people that in years have left the Wills Point campus and are even serving right now in kids' ministry, and they can't be thanked in this month. They're over there serving, even though their home campus is right here, to make Edgewood campus be successful. What I'm trying to help you realize is simply this, is we want to care for our horses, but we also need to make sure that we're not selfish in our request. If we want kids' ministry, and we're parents, and we want to see kids' disciples, we ought to be thinking about what that looks like for us to hop in. Friends, if we want student ministry, we want to be strong, we need to be thinking about as parents what that looks like to hop in. The reality is the work of ministry happens and is performed by its members. And so we want to get our horses healthy and we want to deliver the mail. We can't deliver the mail without horses. 
And so I just would pray that you would think about what it looks like to not want a church that offers ministry and offers good teaching and offers great music and offers lots of ministries for you to come on and be an onlooker. That is pharisaical. It's prideful, it's haughty, and it's oppressive in its own way. May we all do what the Lord has called us to. May we live in community with one another. May we serve one another. May we love and care for one another. May we admonish one another. May we tell the great old story to one another and to those who don't know Jesus. Let's not be Pharisees. And the last thing that you would see that Agur says in verse 14 is kind of what he alluded to earlier. He says, There are those Pharisees whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from the earth, the needy from among mankind. Now let me ask you a question. If, if someone were to, to put your picture in front of them here in our church, would they say, wow, he is, he is a guy who has a teeth like a sword. I mean, he's got fangs like knives. Hey, she has fangs like knives. Is that what they're going to say about you? Is that what you want others to say about you? That not only are, are you stubborn and rebellious, not only do you do what's right on your own eyes, not only do you not like authority, not only are you double-minded, not only do you require more of others than you're willing to do yourself, but you're just plain mean. Is that what you want others to say about you? Hey, in that case, probably a way to confirm it for me is to go, no. So do you want others to say that about you? No. No. The answer is no. I hope not. In Matthew 23, verse 34, this is what Jesus said to these men. He goes, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some of you flog in your own synagogues, and you persecute from town to town. He goes, You tear down others to make much of yourself. That's what Pharisees do. They tear down others to make much of themselves. The reality is, is that you would ask a Pharisee in that day and time, and they, they've been circumcised. They've done everything they could to try to keep the law, though they had all their loopholes. And then Jesus would say, hey, look, you, you've even crucified people in your own synagogues. And they would say, who? We haven't crucified anybody. Not one time have I caught to, taken up a whip and, and beaten anybody. Not one time have I ever laid a, a finger on a soul. The law tells us not to do such. And a Pharisee say, I've never done that. Jesus would say, well, hey, have you ever committed adultery? And they would say, absolutely not. Well, have you ever murdered a man? Absolutely not. That's what Pharisees do. No, I've never done that. But you know what Pharisees would do? They would be the directive point to flog and beat men. They would be the directive point for adulterous purposes. They would be the directive point for all those things. Matter of fact, if you go to the Holy Lands now, you meet a Jew on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath, and he needs to go to the third floor in the elevator. He's going to hop on the elevator, and he's going to look to you as an American, and he's going to say, hey, do you mind pushing that button? Because I can't work on the Sabbath. Keeps the law, and you're the one who breaks it. Isn't that convenient? And that's why Jesus expounds, and he says, hey, listen, don't be double-minded. You would say you're not a murderer, but you have anger in your heart in such a way that you've murdered people. Hey, you, you wouldn't call yourself an adulterer, but he goes, you have lust and you have, you have thoughts in your mind that you know aren't pure. He goes, you're an adulterer. Hey, you, you wouldn't call yourself a liar, but you do things that are manipulative and you set some things ablaze. You're, you're kind of like a sparrow and it's, and it's flying. You're, you're kind of a little bit um, like a bird and it's flitting. 
You're deceptive. And when people look at your life, it doesn't all stick. It doesn't all make sense. But your master told you to build a house. The outside looks fine. But the inside has been built cheaply. And I think Jesus would say, may that not be the case for the people who call themselves followers of Christ. And I pray that would be the case for all of us. May we build our house on the firm foundation. May we not despise His authority. He is the chief shepherd. May we set our eyes on His appearing. May we hear His commands and may we follow Him in obedience. Church, let's go. I'm not ready to shut our doors. But there's some gossip that needs to be dealt with. There's some lying and deceitfulness. There are people that need to step up and start serving. There are members that need to do the membering of the body. There are sheep that are gone wayward, and it's time to go get them back. And it's time to call people to a level in which Jesus called us. I'm in for that. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Anybody else in? Amen. Listen, can I just tell you that what gives me confidence as a pastor is that every night I go to bed, I do know there's at least 100 that are in. Out of a church of a 1,000, I know there's 100 that are in. May we be in, church. May we be all in. And not because you get a little charged up. And you're like, oh, that was good. No, I'm talking about, may you not be, here's the word, so deceive yourself. That we would do what it says. That we wouldn't be pharisaical. And listen, we have no time for leaders here, even me, that are leading you to something that I'm not willing to do myself. And so I'm willing to do the hard work of hard work. And I pray you will be too. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I pray, Father, that you would raise up an army of people who love you, that want to go out and make much of you. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us near people of God that are not double-minded. We're not here out of uh, duplicious means. We're not trying to get people to look at us or impress others. I pray that we're willing to be known even in all of our junk and all of our mistakes. I pray we don't point fingers. I pray we don't throw spaghetti that doesn't stick. I pray we're not a house that looks good on the outside, but on the inside is, is cheaply built. I pray we're not whitewashed tombs that are dead men's bones. I pray we're not cups that have been cleaned on the outside and not dealt with anything on the inside. Lord, help us. Would you grow us? And thank you, thank you, thank you that hindsight is twenty twenty. What we have done is not what we have to become. And so, Lord, would you bring freedom in our lives? We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all check this out.